Inheritance Written by Jeremy C. Schofield Narration and sound design by Alex Schiffer And original music by Josh Fisher Episode 7, Rescue One. The sun is going down as I get back into the car. I realize I am not sure where I am going. As I watch Charles' minivan pull away from the curb, I pull the judge out of its uncomfortable hip holster and place it on the seat next to me while I consider my options. I could just call Rowan and let him know the location of the missing kids. This will lead to a full-out pack assault on the old mobile home factory, as they carry out their vengeance for the kidnapping of the girls and the murder of Victor Jr. But I can already feel the teeth of doubt gnawing away at the idea. An even better idea would be to call Rowan and El Rey to a central location and release the info to both of them at the same time. This would avoid the underworld politics and let both sides decide how they want to move forward at the same time, out where everyone can see what is happening. Open covenants openly arrived at, and all that. I could go home and get myself a shirt that has not been cut into shreds by Cheryl's sacrificial knife. I calm down and stop dithering, then send a group text message to Roan and Clarence telling them that I have the information they need, and to meet me later tonight at Latin Blood. I will leave it up to them to decide how they want to progress forward. Then, maybe Cheryl and I can discuss the whole dark of the moon thing in the morning. Maybe the rituals that are going to take place tomorrow night could be stopped or interrupted. Maybe we could stop this thing for good, I'm used to myself, and I am startled as hell by the voice from the back seat. This is not a good idea, you know. 2. I almost jump out of my skin, and have seized the judge off the seat next to me, and spun around to face my unexpected passenger when I realize I recognize that voice. Steven. You miserable bastard. He smirks at me, reclined in my back seat with his arms spread along the top of the bench. He was not there when I stepped in the car. In truth, he looks like hell. His face is covered in what looks like five o'clock shadow. Since I know his hair no longer grows, I take a closer look at him. Sure enough, he is covered in grime. I'm going to have to wipe the seat down with disinfectant after he leaves. If he leaves. Nice look, bro. Looking for that hobo chick vibe? I keep my voice light, but I keep my pistol pointed right between his eyes. He could be here for any number of reasons, and I assume none of them are good. He grins, the movie star smile not fitting within the homeless person costume. Glad you like it. How have you been, Brian? Oh, just perfect, you know, parties and dancing girls every night. You could cut the bitterness in my voice with a knife. You left me under a pile of crap, Stephen, and I've been trying to dig myself out for years. He shrugs, my emotional state of no real interest to him. At least you're still around to bitch about it, man. I did what I had to do to keep you alive. 
Thanks for nothing, then. I snarled back. And Jess? You just had to keep her alive, too? He looks away for a moment. If I had thought it was possible, I would say he's embarrassed. He avoids my gaze as he replies. Jess was a mistake. I wish she hadn't shown up when she did. You know she's been trying to fight off the compulsion by becoming a crack addict, right? I spit at him. He nods, looking out the window into the distance. Yeah, I know. I've been keeping an eye on her, same as I have been on you. Disguised as a homeless vet, I take it. I've noticed that fatigue jacket and ripped BDUs he's wearing by this point. He looks back at me. Easiest place to hide is in plain sight, man. No one pays attention to the homeless in this town. I could spend a lot of time on this subject. I could ask a lot of questions about what he has been doing for the past couple years. But I find that I don't give a damn. He left his brand on me and then vanished. Takes after our old man, when you think about it. What do you want, Steve? He nods towards my phone. Heading out half-cocked with your Wicca-worshipping buddy and trying to take on Hecate is going to get you both killed, in a most unpleasant way. I shrug. And? We aren't just going to leave things the way they are without trying to do something. His jaw clenches. You know, it can just stop you the other way. I nod. I know. But if that was what you were going to do, you would have done it already. So you must have something else in mind. He sighs, exasperated with me. The blood gods are screwing things up for both worlds here, Bry. Both your world and the second world. Even we would like to see them gone. But you and Madame whatever her name is just don't have the juice to do it alone. If you give it some time, we might be able to work together on this. My curiosity gets the better of me, as usual. How are they screwing things up? He snorts. How aren't they? They're snatching drug users and homeless people off the streets and sacrificing them every month to power up their turlerang. They're terrorizing the city to such a degree the fear is becoming worshipped to them. Hell, one of them was killing people left and right to summon spirits from the other side and give them bodies. The turlerang can only hide so much. If this keeps up, the world can't help but notice, and then we'll be scattered to the four winds, hunted down like monsters. I nod, pieces falling into place for me. One of your fellow vampires is doing the same thing, you know, on a smaller scale. King Leo? A look of utter disdain crosses his face. Idiot. I should have taken him out when I had the chance. I figured he was a poser. Why the clowns on the circle admitted him is beyond me. I take it you weren't offered this position, I ask. I was not a candidate. They aren't fond of me for some reason. Gee, I can't imagine why. He seems to take my snarky comment at face value. Because I wasn't interested in the supernatural equivalent of playing house. We represent true power, Brian. Both here and in the rest of the world. That idiot professor has got them all acting like they are cast members in a buddy cop monster movie. I laugh. 
I can't help myself. As angry as I am with everything he has done to me, I still have missed his banter. Brothers. He leans forward, no longer showing any concern about the dime-sized barrel pointing between his eyes. Brian, don't do anything stupid here. I've been working very hard to keep you alive and unmolested. No matter who you piss off, if you take on all the blood gods at once, he moves his hands outwards, resembling an explosion. All bets are off then. I nod. Fine, I'll keep that in mind. We have some other business to take care of first. He smiles. Off to rescue the werewolf puppies, is it? I sigh, not able to keep my frustration with him in check any longer. They're just kids, Stephen. They used to mean something to you. He nods. Used to. Now the only kids I'm worried about are the ones you haven't had yet. With that, the back door opens, and he is out of the door before I can blink. Nice demonstration of how little time I would have had to pull the trigger if I had needed to. I start the car up, turn on the headlights, and head for home, watching his dark figure walking away in my rearview mirror until the dusk swallows him up. 3. The sign on the front door of the Latin Blood reads, Closed due to renovations. My earlier text message to let them know that I had located the kids created a whirlwind of activity, and all the parties involved agreed on Ray's club as our jumping off point. I had just enough time to go home, change clothes, and grab a couple of boxes of ammo. The fact that Ray is passing up on tonight's ladies' night crowd in order to plan and execute the rescue of the werewolf kids tells me quite a bit about how much he wants to ingratiate himself with the other members of the Second World. Once inside, I see that I am the last arrival, as usual. Rowan is here along with a group of werewolves, including Victor and Manny. I'm surprised to see that Tony Wagner is among them, and I wonder if Cheryl put him up to it. Along the other side of the wall are Ray, Clarence, and a couple of gunmen I don't know. The area in the center of the room looks like the dance floor at a junior high school no one being willing to brave the DMZ to talk to the opposite sex. I walk over to Rowan. Thanks for coming down. I believe I have found your kids. Victor stands up straighter and walks over, injecting himself into the conversation. You have? Are they okay? Now for the hard part. Victor, I don't know what their current status is, but I do know one thing for certain. Her son tried to defend the girls, and in the process, he was killed. I'm very sorry. He blinks for a moment, and I could see his fangs and claws growing longer as he steps towards me. How do you know this? I take a step back without meaning to, then try my best to not run away from the angry father. Because I talked with him, Victor. His spirit, anyway. He exhales, then nods once. I assume the worst. I know he wouldn't go down without a fight. You were right. He wanted you to know that he tried to defend his packmates. A low, sharp noise. And I understand that I am hearing a particularly charged wear trying to clear his throat. 
Where are the other two? Victor described it as a warehouse by the interstate, with an old train and two large trees out front. I drove by the place and located it, right off of Riverside, the old mobile home factory. Rowan looks startled. That's not far from the docks. How could we have not found him if they were that close? I nod, having thought about this one. There is a type of magic available that can block sound waves. Tony nods, remembering the building where he and Cheryl found the altar. I would guess that it is possible to close out other senses as well, including the sense of smell. Clever, growls Rowan. Too blasted clever by half. Do you know who has them? I shake my head. I decided to wait until everyone else was ready to go. If I went and investigated and was caught, they might move the girls again. At this, El Rey steps forward. So is everyone satisfied that I had nothing to do with this? Rowan nods slowly, as if reluctant to commit. Good. Then I can get busy opening my club. Good luck rescuing your kids. He turns to head back behind the bar, followed by his bodyguards. He looks back over his shoulder with a puzzled expression when Clarence doesn't follow. Instead, Clarence clears his throat. I'll go along, Rowan. I don't know who looks more surprised, Ray or Rowan. Ray speaks first. What the hell do you mean you'll go along? I need you here. Clarence looks over at his boss for a second and Ray looks away first. I work for you, Ray. I ain't your slave. Never forget that. Rowan smirks, never unhappy to see his rival brought down a peg. Thank you, Clarence. I won't forget. Clarence shrugs. I don't care if you do forget, but I don't want any part in little girls getting kidnapped. He looks back toward the swinging bar doors that Ray has disappeared through. It seems Clarence is having some kind of crisis of conscience. Uncomfortable silence descends until I hear a new voice break the silence. Mine, as it turns out. I'll come along, too. Rowan stops looking at Clarence, and the pair turn their attention on me instead. You, Brian? What the hell for? I look over at Victor and Manny. How to explain my feeling of obligation to Manny, and to the spirit of Victor Jr. Because I made some promises and I intend to keep them. Rowan purses his lips, then shrugs. It's your funeral. Settle up, boys. Let's bring our girls home. Four. A few stars are visible between the clouds, and the wind is picking up as we pull up across the street from the deserted construction company. My Taurus, followed by Clarence's Mustang, and an oversized Dodge van, all pull up to a stop along the deserted street. Across the way is the carcass of what used to be a huge operation that created wooden frameworks for manufactured houses. The large blue metal building stands desolate and alone, abandoned for two decades. An old decrepit locomotive is parked on the tracks running through the backside of the property. As we pile out into the street, we congregate by Clarence's Mustang. One of Rowan's werewolves gives me an exasperated look. Of course it had to be tonight, didn't it? I'm puzzled. What's wrong with tonight? He looks up at the sliver of the moon coming over the dam, 
darker the moon is tomorrow night. This is the time of the month when we are at our weakest. I can't help myself. I laugh. Not your time of the month? Would you maybe like to wait two weeks to rescue these kids? Rowan's voice interrupts us. Enough. We're going in tonight. Silvio, if you have a problem, feel free to stay behind. That shuts up his whiny foot soldier. And I cross the street. The rest of the impromptu invasion force follows me. There are no guards visible. No sign that the complex is being put to any kind of use, nefarious or mundane. But the moment that I step through a gap between the bars and the fencing, everything changes. In an instant, the noises of the sleeping city vanish, to be replaced by the sounds of flowing water and crickets chirping. The air no longer smells of wet street and approaching rain, but instead of rust. The exact same kind of spell that we have encountered before is being used here, keeping sounds and smells inside its perimeter. I wonder for a moment why it doesn't block vision as well. Manny takes a deep breath as he crosses the fence line, and then stands up straight. Caitlin, she's here! Rowan places a hand on his chest to prevent him from charging into the building alone. We sense her too, Manny along with Remy, and at least half a dozen vampires. Let's take this slow and get them both out safely. We spread out and begin advancing toward the large blue building. The judge is in my hand, as I scan from side to side, looking for some indication of security. None of the werewolves are carrying weapons, although I notice a couple of them are carrying army surplus duffel bags. After a moment of searching, I spot an obtrusive camera in a small white housing mounted above the corner of the parking lot that we are advancing across. I'd say they know we're here, Rowan. I point out the camera. He nods, then sniffs again. They're coming. With that, he drops to all fours and I step backward as he expands in every direction, sprouting a coat of long black fur. Where Rowan had been, a massive wolf stands beside me, black as night. I resist the temptation to scratch him behind the ears and offer him a treat. I might need both arms in the next few minutes. I notice the other pack members have also changed form, leaving Clarence and me alone in a pack of huge wolves. It looks like we are going to be the hands of the operation. I continue moving forward, covering the closest door I can see. From around the corner of the building, there is a blur of movement, and then Victor is knocked backward as the blur resolves itself into an attacking vampire. As Victor struggles back to his feet, I steady the judge with both hands at the assailant's back and pull the trigger. The vampire is knocked forward into the dirt by the silver PDX round I have unloaded into his back. He stands and turns, hissing at me, smoke rising over his shoulder from the silver embedded in his back. As I prepare to pull off another round, two more barely visible figures fly into us, and the battle is on. I realize that I have made an error by bringing the judge instead of a smaller firearm. The combat around me is so close 
and so confused that I can't take a clean shot with my pistol-sized shotgun for fear of injuring one of Rowan's wolves instead. I notice that Victor has charged forward and is now savaging the vamp that I shot earlier, while Rowan, Manny, and Tony are snapping and snarling at a second vampire, attempting to maneuver one of them behind it. The third vampire is making a better accounting for himself. He has broken the leg of the wise-ass from earlier and lunges forward to snatch another wolf that is looming over him. As he sinks his fangs into his opponent's flank, two shots ring out. Clarence, at least, was smart enough to bring a smaller pistol, and has fired twice to drive the vamp off the injured pack member. As the undead creature strengthens up to charge at Clarence, another pistol round and a blast from the judge crush into his skull. His body flops to the ground and then begins to disintegrate. I turn back to face the other combats, just in time to witness Rowan tearing the throat out of the vampire that Manny has hamstrung. Further ahead, Victor is pursuing his assailant into the warehouse, hot on the heels of the wounded vampire as they disappear through the open doorway. Victor, wait! I shout to no avail. The two injured werewolves have converted back to human form and the least injured of the two begins doctoring his packmate's shattered arm. Now I know what the duffel bags are for. It seems you return from wolf form in the nude. Inside the bag are a medical kit, and a collection of sweats and hoodies. I am learning a lot more about werewolf anatomy than I ever wanted to know. As I watch, the less wounded wolf looks up from his field medicine. What are you waiting for? Get in there before Victor gets himself killed! Right, good point. I run towards the warehouse, noticing that Roan and Manny are already at the door, followed by Clarence. Tony is hovering over my shoulder, radiating canine impatience. Yep, sure I'll put him up to this alright. Maybe with instructions to keep me alive. I'm not real happy about this, and I can't imagine Tony is either. The burning in my neck tells me that we are not out of the woods yet. I can almost feel my tattoo glowing, warning me that even more danger waits for us inside. 5. The inside of the building is dark and smells damp. There are flimsy-looking interior walls up, made out of spray-painted plywood. There is a shimmer around the figure of the large black wolf and Rowan is standing in front of me, in nude human form. I make every effort to keep my eyes focused on his face, since there are things about him I am just not interested in knowing. He looks at me while I hurry to reload the judge. Did you know the guards were vampires? He asks. How the hell would I know that? I respond. He shakes his head. I never would have guessed we'd have a whole pack of vampires acting as guards here. I figured humans, maybe a single vamp leader. Since when do they work in concert like this? Clarence clears his throat. Only one way, Rowan. Rowan looks even grimmer than usual for a moment. Yeah, you've got that right. Okay. Manny, you stick with me. We'll go back out and around the perimeter and look for more guards. You three, go further in and try to find the kids. Rowan changes again, and darts back out of the doorway, followed by Manny. As Clarence begins to move forward, through the closet doorway, I place my hand on his chest. 
What the hell are you talking about, Clarence? What makes them work in concert like this? He sighs, exasperated with my stupidity. They all have to have been created by the same master, Drake. They're all acting on his orders. Lovely. I wonder how many baby vampires a single vamp can make. I always thought it was sort of a master-apprentice thing. I never envisioned the vampiric Brady Bunch. I am brought back to the here and now, and Tony is tackled as he clears the next doorway. The momentum of his movement and the attackers knocks them both forward in a rolling furry ball, away from the doorway and into the next room. I heft the judge and charge forward through the swinging door to rescue him. As I stride through the door, I am confronted by another bloody-mouthed vampire, reaching towards me. Without hesitation, I unload four rounds into his chest, blowing him a few feet back into the center of the room. Somehow, he shakes this off and staggers back towards me. I place the top of the judge against his forehead and pull the trigger. The top of his head vanishes in a spectacular explosion of bone and blood. What I have not counted on was there being a third vampire guard. Yet another pale face, this one young and gaunt, launches himself at me. I dodge out of the way, and I am surprised that I am able to. It is almost as if he has not gained full control of his abilities yet, but the fact remains, he is a vampire, and only needs to get lucky once. The snarling somewhere ahead of me indicates Tony is still giving as good as he is getting as he pursues his foe into the next room, so I'm going to have to tackle this problem by myself. And now we run into the problem with revolvers. Since being introduced to the inhabitants of the second world, I have stopped being a big believer in ammunition discipline. Anytime I fire, I tend to use every round I have in an attempt to make sure that whatever is attacking me is no longer able to do so. However, this leaves me with no easy way to defend myself at times like this. There is a hiss and a blur, and I am knocked ass over tea kettle over the steaming pile that remains of the one that I had blew the holes in. I know damn well I am never going to get the judge reloaded in time. As the vamp turns to make another pass at me, I begin to speculate about maybe carrying a silver-plated bowie knife with me as well. It seems very action hero, but I sure wouldn't mind having it right now. The fact that these trivialities are flooding through my mind is distracting me from the fact that I am about to die. He leaps at me again, and I catch him across my forearm. Thank goodness. He is no better at this than I am. I do notice that he has sunk his fangs into the thick leather of the sleeve of my motorcycle jacket. Just as I am beginning to speculate about how to turn this to my advantage, a dark shadow appears at the door. A huge, dark body jumps forward and takes the vamp off me and knocks him into a corner. There in front of me, holding the vampire's severed arm between its jaws, is the biggest blackest cat I have ever seen. I recognize the eyes though that same brown-flecked emerald green that I have been looking into every time he issued orders from his boss for the past several years. Clarence. He dips his head towards the throat of the still struggling creature and bites. In a moment, a head rolls away from the corpse and begins to disintegrate. Seeming satisfied, he shimmers for a moment, 
leaving a very large and very nude Clarence standing in front of me. He shakes his head in disapproval. You born this stupid, Drake? Or did your mama drop you on your head one too many times? I chuckle as I pull five new shells out of my jacket pocket and begin reloading the judge. I blame my father. He snorts. I ain't surprised. The kids must be close by. Too many guards for anything else. I look at the holes torn into the sleeve of my new motorcycle jacket and shake my head. Then look back at my rescuer. Why not just blow him away though? He grimaces. Damn pistol jammed on me. I ought to carry a real gun like you. Well that was close Clarence, thank you. He nods. Couldn't just let you go down because you're stupid. I'm changing back, no need for you to mention this, Dig. I nod. The fact that Clarence is double-natured explains many questions I've had about him over the years, but I can see why he would not want the fact that he is a were-jaguar bandied about town. Cats and dogs, right? He holds still for a moment, then shifts back into the form of the giant black jungle cat. He pads behind me without a sound as I move forward towards the door at the opposite end of the room, hoping to locate Tony. The door here leads out into the main room of the giant blue-sided building. Scrap metal lies everywhere, and there is a smell of rotting moisture in the air. To my left, Tony is panting, a gash visible on his four legs, but otherwise looking healthy. To the right, two giant double doors slide open, leading to what was once the loading dock. Rowan enters looking like a conquering hero, followed by Victor and Manny. They are all wearing sweats and tank tops now, and I realize they stopped back by the duffel bag that was dropped in the parking lot. There is a whisper of movement behind me, and I turn and notice that Clarence has vanished. He seems to think his work here is done. I am left wondering about his relationship between him and Rowan, though. There is some history that I am not privy to. The main room is huge, used once upon a time for constructing multiple mobile home frames at once. On the opposite side of the room, steps lead up to a platform supporting a landing in what was probably the foreman's office once upon a time. The platform is lit up by shop lights on collapsible stands, all attached to an industrial generator. The lights point down at a group of large kennels set up beside each other. The scene somehow reminds me of the cages below Annis' home. Inside two of the kennels, I can see the forms of two girls. From here, I can't tell if they are breathing. 6. We all rush forward, heedless of any additional threat that might materialize in our concern for the prisoners. It occurs to me the members of the pack can tell if there are any more vamps in the immediate area, so I may be the only one who is being reckless here. Once on the platform, Rowan tosses a bundle of cloth over my shoulder. I turn and notice that Tony has returned to human form, and he reaches up and catches the sweats with one hand. Getting a better look at his physique, I begin to thank my lucky stars that I never did get into a real live fight with him. I shake off this distraction 
and I begin looking around for a key to deal with the lock securing the kennels. Inside that little office, there is a monitor watching feeds from several different security cameras, a girly magazine, and a half-drunken bottle of beer, all of which would seem to indicate that there was at least one human guard here. No keys are visible. While I am uselessly flailing around, Victor and Manny have both knelt down in front of the cages, and each of them is pulling the cage bars apart. With a few metallic snaps, the doors have been removed from the kennels, removing the necessity for keys. As they reach in to remove the girls from their confinement, I notice that both of them have been secured to the bottom of the kennels by wrapping layers of duct tape around their wrists, then around the kennel floor. Over the top layer of duct tape, tubing runs from both their cages to the IV bags in a metal box sitting on the floor between the cages. The teenagers are being drained of their blood. Stop! I yell. Both werewolves seize lifting the girls while I move forward. I have been hospitalized enough to know how IVs work, and I'm able to slide the stents out of both of their arms, then press the surgical tape down on both wounds to stop them from bleeding until we can get to a first aid kit. The two wares resume lifting the girls from their prisons, and the rest gather around the kidnapped youngsters. They can barely lift their heads. Their hair is matted and dirty. I didn't think they had been missing all that long, and I am shocked by their emaciated condition. It looks like the combination of the drugs and the drainage of their blood has left them almost dead. Behind me, Tony is cursing under his breath. I take a step back from the rescue operation, not wanting to be in the way, and instead walk over to stand next to Tony. Something I should know? He looks at me, tears welling up in his eyes. One of our daughters is around this age, Brian. We killed those damn vamps too slowly. I nod, not finding much to disagree with. True. Thanks for the assistance, by the way. Tony shrugs. I don't like you much, Brian, but Cheryl sure does. And she isn't wrong very often. She sees something I don't, I guess. Rowan stands and turns to face us. Time to go, folks. We've got to get these girls out of here before any more little vampire helpers show up. At the word of vampire, Caitlin's eyes flutter open. No, she moans. No more vampires. Her father leans over her. We've got you, baby. We're taking you home now. She nods, then curls up like an infant against her father's chest. The image of her emaciated form resting against his tattooed chest would be a powerful piece of art if I knew how to paint. He lifts her as if she was a newborn and begins walking toward the double doors. After a moment, Victor lifts the youngest girl, Remy, and follows. I slide in beside Rowan. Where's her father? I ask. He shakes his head. Logging accident last year. We take care of her and her mother. She belongs to the pack now. The sheer alienness of this response reminds me full force whatever Rowan and his pack are 
isn't human. I need to be more careful to remember that. 7. I would have preferred to take them to a hospital, but Rowan shot the idea down in a hurry. This is pack business, is all he had to say about it. Not wanting to just go home at this point, I hopped in the Taurus and drove the short distance over the docks. Now, back inside the office, the kids look worse than ever in the weird, diffused screen light. I am becoming concerned about their health and I say so. Rowan puts a hand up to forestall me. Brian, I appreciate your concern. We have someone on their way here now to give them an exam and a few units of blood. They also need to get checked for, um... Just then, I get it. These are two young, attractive females. Rowan doesn't want the police tied in if they have been molested in any way. My stomach lurches. In the adrenaline of getting them out of the warehouse, this possibility never occurred to me. Apparently, it has occurred to Manny. His daughter is shaking her head. No, Dad, nothing like that. They would, like, make comments and threats, but no one ever did anything to us. She grimaces. Other than lock us in cages and drain blood out of us, I mean. Remy, the other rescued wolf, looks up. Are you sure about Victor? She asks, her brown eyes about to overflow. Since no one else has the guts to answer, I take it upon myself. Yeah, Remy. They killed him while he was trying to break you two free. She sniffles as a tear rolls down her cheek. I thought for sure he was going to get out. He tore them up pretty good. It took two of them to hold him. Then their boss slugged him, and he collapsed. I was just hoping... With that, she collapses in her mother's lap, weeping. I make eye contact with her mother, a woman I haven't met before. As she strokes her daughter's hair, she mouths, Thank you, at me. I try to smile and turn away. I sure don't feel like anyone's hero right now. Manny's daughter seems to be holding up a little better, and is fielding questions for Rowan and several others about the procedures that were being attempted upon them. Rowan holds a hand up to demand silence. My real question, Caitlin, is how? How did you three get your hands on this stuff in the first place? She's quiet for a minute, and then looks up at the pack leader, her father's hand in the center of her back, steadying her. It just sort of happened. There are always dealers around, you know, but we just sort of ignore them. But this one guy, he insisted that this stuff would work on us. So he knew you three were a part of the pack? She nods. He did. I figure he must be a friend to the pack or something. And, I don't know, we were so bored. There's just nothing for us here, you know? Especially for me and Remy. We're just waiting until someone decides to marry us, right? The bitterness in her voice is palpable. Within hours of the worst experience of her life, she's able to summon her resentment at her community. Teenagers. I don't know. It was something no one else was doing, so Victor tried it first. 
I think to prove that this guy was lying, she falls silent. And he wasn't, prompts Victor Sr. No, he wasn't. He was amazing, but by the next day, we were looking for him after school. Our necks were all totally red from scratching. All we could think about was wanting more of it. Your necks? I ask, surprised. I thought you smoked this stuff. She nods. We did. But all three of us, we had this horrible itch on the side of our necks. You know, right where your tattoo is. Felt like something was biting us. We just needed to get more. She sighs. So he told us to meet him over by the warehouse. We all walked over. Because what could hurt us, right? Three werewolves. We walked through the gate and got hit with those stun things they show on TV. With the wires coming out of them. Tasers. Standard equipment issued to the Ash Falls PD. I wonder if a member of the PD is somehow tied into this whole mess. Victor is walking back and forth, agitated. So when did they kill my son? She looks back down at the floor. Later that night. They were careless with him, and only left one guard with him. When he saw they were herding us into those cages, she shudders. He went berserk. He tore apart the one guard. I doubt he survived. Two more jumped on him, but I thought he would make it out. But he wouldn't run. Her frustration and pain is evident in her voice. We were yelling at him, telling him to go get help. He just wouldn't listen. He wanted to save us, I think. Rowan nods, as it should be, Caitlin. He did as he was taught. His eyes narrow. Where were you being drained? Caitlin sighs. There was some creepy guy, always wearing a lab coat. He would give us doses, then take notes. Over and over again. Shoot something into the tubes, then check our eyes. Listen to our hearts. It was almost like going to the doctor. Then, last night... He said he was done. Then they hooked us up to the IVs and started pulling blood out of our arms. Remy speaks up. It was so weird. They would drain a bag. Then they would hook up a different bag and, like, pump us back up. They must have done that five or six times. Caitlin nods. The first few times we screamed and tried to fight back, but we just got so tired. Victor would have kept fighting back, I bet. Victor stands up straighter at the mention of his son. So, do we know who is behind all this? Remy looks at Caitlin, and something passes between them. Yes, we know. The other vamps kept calling him Lord or Master. But the other guys who were working on our cages were complaining about working for someone named Cassius, I think. They also kept calling him King Leo. Rowan and I both exhale and look at each other. To Cassius? He asks. Caitlin's head comes up at the vampire's name. 
Yeah, him. He even came down and looked us over and talked to us a couple of times. Said we would be his immortal slaves and the mothers of his armies. She takes a deep breath. I don't think he's sane, Dad. Like, the elevator doesn't make it all the way to the top floor. Despite his anger, Manny smiles at this. Well, Mia, it isn't going to be a problem for much longer. No matter what he did to you two and Victor, he's going to pay for it. Rowan looks over at me. I'd say your investigation is over, Brian. Yeah, I'd say so. Eight. After the revelation, Rowan could not push me out of his facility quickly enough. As I walked out, an ER doc and trauma nurse I know were walking in, so I can at least rest easy that the girls are getting some medical care that doesn't involve herbal tea and vision quests. Though I do wonder what the med staff told their supervisors at the hospital to get out of work. Now, headed up I-5 to the 34th Street exit, I am wondering what comes next. Ronan and his troops might refuse to go after De Castillis tomorrow night, on the dark of the moon, because of the bad juju associated with it. I suppose that works out just as well, since we don't even know where King Leo is hanging around these days. I would be real surprised if he has gone back to his condo. Also, Cheryl and I have plans for tomorrow night. Nothing fancy, just interrupting the arcane sacrificial ritual that holds our city in thrall. I wonder if she has even discussed her plan with Tony yet. Somehow, I doubt it. As I exit and head up 34th to Honeysuckle and home, I have to wonder about the wisdom of giving Decastlius a whole 48 hours to prepare for the great werewolf invasion, though that should give them a little more time to tie Elray into whatever move they decide to make. Though I now know that Ray isn't a vampire himself, he sure has a ton of gun-toting thugs that would make the whole operation a lot more of a sure success. I wonder if there is a way to get myself out of participation in the whole thing. But I have my doubts. I am already tied into Cosmic Destruction Night tomorrow night. Should I beg off of the Great Blood War? I would hate that if it impacted my paycheck. My pleasant glow of spending imaginary money is interrupted as I pull into the parking lot. Every light in my condo is on. Light up like a monochrome Christmas tree. I didn't leave it that way when I left this morning. I'm beginning to ask myself serious questions about maybe moving into a place with gated parking and 24-hour security. He hangs up the cell phone and tells his driver to turn around. There is no longer a reason to visit his laboratory. What he has taken from the wolves will have to be enough. So, they have gathered their forces, have they? And now they will move against him. It is almost pathetic. Every move, every stratagem, every plan of theirs has ended in failure and ruin. The very idea that the little pack of wolves, led by that pathetic detective, can penetrate his defenses is laughable. Their time as the masters of Ash Falls is over. As he exits his limo at his facility, all around him is the bustling noise of his forces. Orders are issued, weapons are equipped, deployments and tactics are discussed. He pays no attention to the details. 
the battle now will rest on the strength of him and his children. And what force can stand against an army of the undead? Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Inheritance in the Ash Falls universe. As always, you can check out the print version on Amazon, as well as other works by Jeremy C. Schofield. Join us next time for more Ash Falls. <laughs>